I want to um, tell you a tale. It's a tale almost as old as time. It's a love story about a beautiful woman and her handsome groom. It's about the way that when they met, they knew. I mean, they knew that they were made for each other. They immediately entered into a relationship of love, committed to one another, focused on one another's needs, encouraged one another, blessed one another, hold one another up. I mean, it was the kind of romance that is way better than you read about in the books or see in the movies. It's the kind of romance that had a purity to it, just a devotion to it that was incredible. And it, it, it helped their relationship with God to be in a relationship with each other. But so oftentimes when we get enamored with another person, our, our mind just kind of comes off of God and goes on to that other person, but not in this relationship. In this relationship, the closer they grew to each other, the closer they grew to God, there was an intimacy between them, an intimacy between them and God. It was a spectacularly beautiful thing. In fact, it was flawless. Until one day when it all came crashing down. That was a long time ago in a land far, far away. But let's fast forward. Adam and Eve took the temptation and sin entered the picture. And after sin entered the picture, along came with sin, death. And, and suddenly there were things going on like murder. There are things like banishment. Th things like people who were separating themselves from one another as they populated the earth and, and nation rose up against nation and there was war and there was devastation and there was hatred and all of these things that didn't exist before the temptation was taken. And, and God had such a heart for his people that he kept reaching out to them and ultimately as paganism spread throughout the earth... God went to where the pagans were, and where the pagans were, he rustled up a guy by the name of Abram, and he shook him by the lapels, and he said, Abram, I have a plan for you. I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me. I want you to come with me, and when you do, I promise you that you'll be glad you did. I promise you that if you'll just walk with me by faith, I will make out of you a great nation. And there will be a nation that is called to be my people and you can follow me and experience the life that you were intended to experience. And Abram did follow him. And he did become a great nation. He had a son, uh, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who had a son, Joseph. And before you knew it, there was this whole clan of people who were following after God again. But it didn't take long before... Joseph went off to Egypt, and the plagues hit, and his family came to Egypt, and now all of the people of God are there in one place in Egypt, and as they grow and multiply and God blesses them, the Egyptians become worried and put them under a yoke of slavery. And they served in Egypt for 400 years of hard labor without God answering their cry until one day God raised up Moses 
and called him and empowered him to lead them out, but not just to lead them out, but also to lead them in. There was a promised land. He had promised Abraham way back there was going to be a land flowing with milk and honey that was set aside for the people of God. They were to be like a city set on a hill that everyone would see them and God's blessing upon them and know that he was the one true creator God. And so as, as Moses led them out, they got to the edge of the promised land and they buckled under fear and refused to take God's blessing. And they turned around and wandered back in the wilderness until every one of the adults in that group had died in the wilderness. And then the next generation came in to the promised land. And God did miracle after miracle after miracle, and he fought on their behalf and he gave them the land of Canaan that we now know is the holy land. But as soon as they got comfortable, they did what they had always done. They turned their backs on the God who loved them. And they began to go after other gods. The scripture says our God is a jealous God. And so as they began to go after other gods, he raised up prophets and the prophets confronted them and the people killed the prophets. And he sent more prophets and they killed those prophets and he sent more prophets and they killed those prophets. Until finally God gave them over to their sin and they were taken into exile, one nation after another, Assyria and Babylon, and on and on it went until finally they didn't hear from God again. For a generation? No. For a century? No. For four centuries, not a word from their God. No prophets, no stirrings, nothing. Until finally there was one who was raised up, a voice crying in the wilderness, make way for the Lord. And the Messiah is coming and he called them to repentance. And Jesus himself, the Messiah, came to him and was baptized there in the Jordan River. And as he was baptized, the voice of God rang out in the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And Jesus' ministry begins and people are healed and demons are cast out and people are raised again. And for all of his righteousness and all of his goodness and all of his teaching, they turn against him and they hung him on a cross until he was dead. And on the third day, he rose again. And when he rose again, he came back to his people who had loved him and never left him. And he encouraged them and he taught them and he showed them how to become the church and to carry on the mission that he had. And he ascended into heaven and when he ascended, the Holy Spirit fell upon his church and the church filled with the Spirit began to operate in the power of the Spirit and the world was set on fire spiritually and the church exploded. And all of a sudden, the name of God was becoming known, not just in Israel, but throughout the Roman Empire and all to faraway lands and down into Africa. And the, and the church is exploding. This is all happening in 30, 40, 50, 60 AD. But after a while, when the church has sort of got its footing, false teachers arise. They begin to come into the church and they begin to question the teaching of Jesus. They begin to question the teaching of the Old Testament. They begin to question the teaching of the apostles. They begin to imply that there's a better way, another way, if we would just listen. And there's only one apostle left. And we're at the end now of the first century. And there's a very old man by the name of John, the one who is known as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And with a shaky hand, the old man picks up a quill and he begins to write as the Holy Spirit inspires him to do so. And he writes a, a, 
uh, tract a treatise, a treatment that will, from that day forward, stand as a foundation to help us understand the difference between real Christianity and false faith. And that brings us to today. Because God has protected that writing. And here we are in the summer of 2017, as I said, in a land far, far away from where all of this began. In a land far, far away from where that old man sat down and wrote the inspired words of God known as the book of 1 John. And we find ourselves with Bibles in our hand turning to the book of 1 John. See how I did that? And as we turn to the book of 1 John, I want you to go to chapter 2. And John is about to hit us with some wisdom that makes that whole story make sense. In fact, all that I told you from the time of Adam forward, all the way to the time that now John is writing, and now forward, all the way to the time that we are reading this, all comes in to make sense, and we now have direction in these verses that we're going to read today that are so profound and so important that if we will listen and get it into our hearts and live it out in our lives, it will change not just our lives, but eternity. So do I have your attention? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Right from the beginning, we have some questions to answer. So I don't know how it hits you when you read verse 15, but when I read it, it hit me like a ton of bricks to say, wait a second, I don't think this measures up. Because after all, he's telling us in verse 15, do not love the world. And I think, how does John tell us that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired him to write in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world. So God loved the world, but we're not supposed to love the world? How in the world does this make sense? John chapter 3, verse 16, God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to be sacrificed for us so that we, believing in him, could have eternal life. God's love for the world is the impetus for the whole gospel story. God's love for the world is the reason there are crosses hanging on our walls. God's love for the world is the reason that there is a way and there is hope today for lost people. God loves the world. He sent Jesus because he loved the world. So why would he warn us against loving the world? Look at the verse again. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, this is strong. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I don't really like that verse. I just don't like the sound of that. Because do any of, can any of you relate to this that... When you hear that, you go, okay, but I got to be honest, there's some things in the world I love. <laughs> Anybody? Is it just me? No? Well, just two couple of you. Okay. The rest of you are so righteous, you can just not listen to the rest of this, okay? <laughs> but there's some stuff in the world that I love. I mean, really love. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 
I, I mean, a fantastic pepperoni pizza, like is not the right word for that. I love that. There, there's other things in this world that I love. <laughs> right? I, and every time I, I'm at the Rose Bowl and that team runs out and the, the band plays that cool song, I just get chills. I love it. And every now and then they win a championship of some sort and I'm like dancing in the streets. It is the thrill of my life, right? And there's some things even more valuable than pizza and UCLA that I love. Aww. Tell my wife you saw that, points with the wife. Um, you know, my family, I don't have to tell you guys, you have your own families. I love my family with every ounce of my being. My, my wife is incredible. I'm just blown away that God would bless me with a gift like her and the children that we've had and been able to raise who are now adults who love and serve Jesus with all their hearts. And I'm telling you, my grandkids are better than your grandkids. <laughs> I'm just telling you, right? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching. I have to tell the truth. It is what it is. Um, there are a bunch of things in this world that I love. And so what do we do with this verse that says, don't love the world or the things in the world? You see, when God tells us not to love the world here in, in 1 John chapter 2, he is not talking about the things that are gifts from him. He's talking about the world's corrupt system. Things that are temporary, things that have no eternal significance, no value. And he says, when you love those things and you give your heart to those things... You're taking your heart from me. And so the struggle is not between should we love anything. Some of you are nature lovers and you go out hiking. If, you, if you're a nature lover, you've been to Yosemite, right? Do you not just feel that much closer to God in Yosemite? And are you supposed to go, oh, I hate this? No, God gave it to us. It's a blessing. He's talking about the fallen world system. He doesn't want us to have a love for anything that is going to pit our hearts against God. God loves people. He says it again and again and again. And when asked what his commandments are, he says, love God and love people. They're in the world. So, so if we're going to love God and love people, obviously it doesn't mean we can't love anything that is in the world. He wants us to love people too. And he's given us many gifts and blessings that we're meant to enjoy. But the gifts and the blessings and even the people are never allowed to have a place in our heart that only is supposed to belong to God. Because our God is a jealous God. And the context of this passage makes it clear that we're commanded not to love the things that are part of the fallen system of this world. After all, the things of this world always disappoint. They never pay off fully. They will never fulfill. They will never fully satisfy. The only real joy and fulfillment that you can find in life comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? That's it. Let's think of it like this. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, first book of the New Testament. And go to Matthew 6, and let's let Jesus speak to this subject. In Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus is teaching, and here's what he says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There, there's an inextricable link between that which we treasure and our hearts. And so I'm going to ask you to consider this question this morning. Where's your heart? And I'm going to ask you to do some real searching inside and to really grapple with this question because, because God's word here tells us that the key to the abundant life that Jesus gives us is that we have to put our treasure where he tells us to put our treasure. We have to give our heart to what he tells us to give our heart to. God created this world and he gave it to people to rule over and subdue. But after the fall, Satan became the temporary ruler of this world. And it has always been his MO to, to dangle shiny things in front of us that this world has to offer and say, if you chase this, you'll find fulfillment. And for thousands of years, people have been chasing the shiny things that he dangles and never finding fulfillment. But in our hunger and our thirst, we continue to chase. Some things are temporary and some things are everlasting. And what God is telling us is that we've got to treasure the things that are everlasting. Now, what is everlasting in this world? God, his word, and the souls of people. Everything else is temporary. Even the world itself will one day no longer be. And if you're honest, you might have to admit that you're struggling a little bit with this treasure issue. That, that your heart has a tendency to get divided. That you say, as much as I love God, there's some things that I probably shouldn't love and they've got a part of my heart. And, and if you're really serious and you want to do a self-examination, remember, this is not for your neighbor. This is not for you to think about where your neighbor's heart is. This is for God to show you where your heart is. And if you really want to get serious about that, ask yourself some questions. What do I find myself pursuing? What gets me out of bed in the morning? What am I chasing after? Where am I looking for meaning and significance and satisfaction and fulfillment? And before you answer those questions for yourself, commit to being brutally honest. What are your priorities like? See, I'm not interested in whether or not you can answer the right question about what your priorities should be. I think we need to look at our lives and ask ourselves what our priorities actually are. Because if you've been in church for any length of time, you can answer the questions about what your priorities should be. You know that your first priority should be your relationship with God. Your second, your second priority should be your relationship with people and loving the people that God has placed in your life, family first and then others outside of that. You know that your third priority should be standing uh, for Christ as a witness to a lost world. We know what our priorities ought to be, but if we look at our schedules, if you were to dare to take out your calendar for the last 12 months and look at everything you had done and spent your time on in the last 12 months, would it reflect those priorities? If you were to, to look at your bank account ledger and to ask yourself, what does your bank account say you prioritize? I wonder what it would tell us. What are you prioritizing in your pursuits? This is not some arbitrary rule from a God who's trying to hold us down. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for us and wants to give us abundant life and he's showing us how it comes. Don't love the things of this world. They're all going away. 
Put your treasure, Jesus says, in the things that will last. So how can you really know where your heart is? How can you really know what you love? Here's a good way to think about it. Whatever you love gets your attention. What has your attention most of the time? Whatever you love gets your time. Whatever you love gets your resources. Whatever you love, you're willing to sacrifice for. Still not sure what to love and what to watch out for? John is very clear. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, let's look at verse 16 again. We already read this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There's your list. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Those are the things that he tells us to look out for. And you think, what a short list. Only three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. It's an all-encompassing list, my friends. It covers everything. Everything that our, that our fleshly heart wants to go after is covered in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And I want you to notice, it's less about the actual things that you tend to love than it is your motive for loving them. You see that he uses this word lust twice here in this little one verse list. And when we think of lust, we tend to think of sexual lust, but, but it's a, it is a word that is far more encompassing than that. He's not just talking about that. In fact, um, the Greek word simply means to deeply desire, but that doesn't really have the full power of it. It means to long for or to crave something. And it's especially applied to craving things that God has not seen fit to give you. Does that make sense? So when John talks about the lust of the flesh, he's talking about a drive to have something that is not for God's glory, but for your own temporal satisfaction. It's about always needing more and never being satisfied no matter how much you have. It's a drive. And we're all dealing with it. There's a, there's a businessman. He's in Newport Beach. He has an office right by the marina. He's in the like, fifth story of the building that looks out on the marina. He's got the corner office. He owns the company. He's worked as hard as he can, five, six, seven days a week, skipping vacations, all that stuff, driven, driven, driven to build this business. And he is now very, very wealthy. And he's got the corner office and he's got the nice car and he's got all the stuff that he wants. And his office looks out in that marina and he watches the boats come in and go out throughout the day. And he always works 12 to 15 hours. And so he needs a break at some point and he'll go down usually around lunchtime and he'll walk along the marina just to get some fresh air 15 or 20 minutes just to clear his mind and get some fresh air. And he goes down there one day and there he sees among the yachts and the beautiful boats, he sees this little boat, it's a fishing boat, it's rusty, it's old, it's beat up, it's not worth much. And in the fishing boat that is tied to the end of the dock, there is a man, a fisherman, and he is asleep in his boat, and he's got his big hat down over his eyes, and he's kicking back like this, and the guy sees it, and he's immediately disgusted at the laziness of this guy, because it's noon. And the guy's asleep in his boat, and he's supposed to be a fisherman, and he kicks the boat, and he wakes the guy up, and the guy says, uh, can I help you? And he says, what are you doing? He said, well, I was sleeping. <laughs> and he said, but it's noon. Aren't you a fisherman? Yes, I'm a fisherman. What are you doing asleep at noon? He said, I've already caught all that I need for today. 
He said, well, why don't you catch more than you need? I mean, you're going to waste the whole afternoon. You could be out there. You could catch. He said, why would I do that? Why would I catch more than I need? He says, because if you catch more than you need, you will be able to take them to the market and sell them and you will make more profit. And with that profit, you will be able to buy another small fishing boat and hire a couple of guys and you can double your income because now you'll have two boats. And if you manage that well and you work hard, that two becomes four and that four becomes 16 and it just multiplies. And pretty soon, you're going to have a huge fishing company and you're going to get wealthy. And when you're wealthy, you will be able to relax and enjoy the good life. <laughs> and he said, that's what I thought I was doing. <laughs> you see, there's this drive that pushes and pushes and pushes us for what? So that tomorrow we can get up and push more? For what? Anything that has eternal significance? No. Just stuff. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are you striving for? It could be a, a promotion at work. It could be a material things. It could be a relationship or some experience that you want to have. And it drives you and it's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's about finding satisfaction. But shouldn't it be about the glory of God? I was in Washington, D.C. last week. I had opportunities to meet with a bunch of senators and congressmen and do a bunch of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm a little bit cynical. I know probably you guys aren't, but I'm a little bit cynical when it comes to Washington. And uh, I wasn't really expecting to be encouraged. But I met a number of legislators who are on fire for Jesus and have a story to tell about how God sent them there and what they're trying to do to change the world in Washington. And I was encouraged. Well, that's a small group. There's a whole bunch of other people sitting behind a bunch of big desks and a bunch of big fancy buildings in Washington. And for the most part, many of them are driven, as far as I can tell, by this desire to somehow increase their power. They're in Washington and they've got that much power, but you realize that once you get to Congress, you're just one of a bunch of people and you're having to make all kinds of deals. Why? So you can increase your power. Eventually, you move up in the ranks and you get to the place where you're the senior person in your party or the Speaker of the House or the President of the Senate or whatever it is that you ascribe to be. Maybe you even get to be Vice President or President and you push and you push and you push and you push so that you can get more power and then you die the end. And it's astonishing how many of us are driven by things that have no eternal significance. Here's the thing. When you're driven by the lust of the flesh, there's no such thing as enough. You never reach a point where you go, finally, I'm there. So people who are driven by the lust of the flesh just keep running on the hamster wheel and they are going nowhere, but they are running out of energy and they are becoming more and more thirsty. And when they thirst, they go after something that they think will satisfy, which doesn't satisfy. It keeps them running and it's a deathly cycle. So what does it take to overcome the lust of the flesh? I think that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Here's what it takes. A little thing the Bible calls self-control. 
Because as long as we are in this world and Jesus hasn't come back for us, we're going to be dealing with the flesh and the temptations are going to keep coming because we live in a fallen world with a system that is designed to draw us away from God and it is going to take self-control. Now, if you're a Christian, I have good news. Self-control is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the more we are submitted to the Spirit of God, the more self-control that we have, the more we are able to experience the abundant life. But the further that we walk away from God and the more that we take matters into our own hands and live for ourselves and our flesh, the harder it is to control ourselves. The lust of the flesh is a trap, no matter how attractive it looks. But there's more. John also wants to, to warn us about the lust of the eyes. So when John talks about the lust of the eyes, he is talking about fleshly desires for the things that we see. And you know, the eyes are an amazing thing. When you see things, oftentimes you want them. In fact, there are many things in this world I never knew I needed until I saw them. You know what I mean? Right? Do you ever go walking in the mall just for exercise? That's a terrible idea. You're just going to see all kinds of stuff that you didn't know you needed, but now you've seen it, so you need it. It's amazing how our eyes can lead us down the wrong road. This is why, by the way, they have professionally done photographs in the menus of restaurants. Have you ever been to Denny's? No, you guys have never been to Denny's, I'm sure. If you've been to Denny's, right? Known worldwide for the greatest food on the planet, Denny's, right? Man, you open that menu, that's the greatest food on the planet. Like, I'll take one of those and two of those and bring some more of that. And then they bring it, and it looks nothing like what's in the picture, right? You're like, oh my gosh, the one in the picture was made by a trained chef. This one was made by a trained chimpanzee, and it looks like it was just (laughs) dumped in your plate, pulled out of the freezer, maybe out of the trash can, they throw it on the plate. You're like, wow, somehow I feel like I got ripped off, right? Why do they put those pictures in menus? Because they want you to see it. When you see it, you want it. About four years ago, um, my wife and I had the privilege of being able to buy a new car, and and that was a great thing. And and so we went down, I, I did all the research online, figured out what car I wanted and all this kind of stuff, went down to the dealership. And, and picked out the car, the right color, and everything just the way I wanted, the right equipment, the right model, the everything. And, and it was the nicest car I've ever bought. It's the nicest car I've ever owned. And, and I get in this car, it's a 2013 Hyundai Elantra. I drove it off the lot, it looks like that. And man, I love this car. I'm like, man, you know when you've been driving a junky old car and then you get in a new car, you're like, wow, I can hear myself. You know, and there's not bumps and rattles and things falling off the dashboard and you're stuffing little things down to make the squeak stop and all that. All that's gone and I'm driving this car. I'm like, oh, I love this car. You know, you could just tell it what to do with your mouth and it does stuff. I'm like, this is incredible. Change the radio station. Okay, it does it. You know, call my wife. It does it. It's the greatest thing. Every bell and whistle I wanted is on this car. I love this car. And you know how when you get a new car, you, you, um, for the first few days, every time you get in it, you just have that rush again. You're like, oh, this is a great car. I love this. I had that for probably two months. And I'm driving my beautiful blue Elantra down the 60 freeway to an appointment that I was going to out in the Inland Empire. And about a quarter of a mile ahead of me, I just caught a glimpse of something red changing lanes. And I went, what is that? 
I had never seen anything like it. It was the coolest thing. I said, I got to see what this is. And I stepped on it, went around this guy. And, and, and just by, as luck would have it, he got off at the same off-ramp that I got off at, and I was right behind him. And he turned left, and I turned left, and he pulled into the same restaurant I was going to and literally parked right next to me. And he got out and went into the restaurant, and I stayed in my car looking like I had something to do. <laughs> and when he was gone, I got out of my car and started staring at his brand new 2014 Corvette Stingray. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, there was slobber coming down my chin. I'm shaking like this. I'm leaning in, hoping the alarm doesn't go off. I'm peering through the windows. Oh, my gosh. And I looked over at my piece of junk Elantra. <laughs> How does this guy have this car? I've been serving you, Lord, all these years. <laughs> I didn't know I needed it until I saw it. That's the lust of the eyes. We see things and we go, oh, my life would be so much better if I could just have that and have it now. So are you going to choose the lust of the flesh or are you going to choose self-control? Are you going to choose the lust of the eyes or are you going to choose contentment? Because I can tell you that if you let the lust of the eyes be your king, you will never know the meaning of the word contentment. And finally... Are you going to choose humility or are you going to choose the boastful pride of life? The boastful pride of life, that me first attitude, that thought that my life is sort of the center of everything and other people are just window dressing for my life. Everything revolves around me. I want honor. I want position. I want authority. I want to be recognized. I want the world to revolve around me. But here's the problem. No matter how much you want to be the center of the universe, you ain't. Put it in your notes. You ain't. If you're not sure if you have a problem with pride, ask yourself, how do I feel when I'm not recognized for something I've done? What happens in my heart when somebody else is honored above me and I don't get noticed? Would I rather serve or do I want to be served? Do I resent the fact that some people seem to have things a whole lot better off than I do, even though they obviously don't deserve them? For too many of us, there are times when we think that we're the center of the universe and every other person is just a bit player on the stage called our lives. That's the boastful pride of life. And it may be the worst of the three vices mentioned here. Pride drives you to insist upon being your own Lord. It drives you to insist upon being your own king, your own boss. And that pursuit will ruin you every single time. Remember Adam and Eve? It ruined them. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and we'll close with this. First book. Book of Genesis chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me tell you, in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3, we have the infamous story where the serpent is tempting Adam and Eve, and he comes to Eve, and he begins to lie to her and confuse her and question her, and she holds her own pretty well for a while. He lies. She says, no, that's not right. He confuses. She goes, no, it's not exactly like that. And, 
and eventually he keeps pushing her because God has said there's one tree in the garden, one tree in the world that you cannot eat of the fruit, and if you do, you'll die. And the serpent begins to lie to her, and it all comes crashing down in verse 6. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The food. She saw that it was good for food. It was something as simple as, I'm hungry. And I'm hungry for something I'm not allowed to have. What is it about forbidden fruit that makes it so exciting? I'm hungry for something I'm not allowed to have. It's the lust of the flesh. It's just, a, it's just a natural desire, you might say. But I'm hungry. And God has said, no, you can't have it. She saw that it was good for food. And she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. It was so beautiful. It was like no other fruit in the whole garden. Wow, this fruit is amazing. That has got to be the best tasting fruit in the world. It's the best looking fruit in the world. I bet if I could have that beautiful thing that I want so much, it would satisfy me. And finally, and that it was desirable to make one wise. The serpent had been lying to her and saying, he's not letting you eat the fruit because he knows that if you eat the fruit, you will become wise like God, know the difference between good and evil, and you will no longer need him to be your God. You'll be able to be your own God. You want to know the definition of pride? The insistence upon being your own God. That's it. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That's all that's in Satan's arsenal but it's been enough to take down person after person, nation after nation, civilization after civilization because we want so often the things that God has not given to us and so often we do not want God himself. So here's what I want you to take away from today. All those Beautiful, shiny things that the world shines in front of us and says, take this instead of God. It's beautiful. It's alluring. It's enticing. Here's what you need to know. It's a trap. It's a trap. I don't care how beautiful it looks. It's a trap. It's Pinocchio on Pleasure Island. It's a trap. It's designed to deceive. It is not designed to satisfy. Only God can meet our deepest needs. Those things the flesh craves, the things you can't take your eyes off, the things that will make you feel like a big shot, like you really are somebody, it's all counterfeit. It's all a mirage. And we're like that man in the desert who sees the mirage in the distance and uses his last little bit of strength to crawl after the water that isn't there. And when he gets there, he ends up with a mouthful of sand and it is the opposite of its intended effect. So John warns us, pass on the lust of the, of the flesh and choose self-control. He warns us, pass on the lust of the eyes and choose contentment. He warns us, pass on the boastful pride of life and choose humility. And if we take his advice, 
We will enjoy God and the abundant life that Jesus died to give us. So I ask you again, where's your heart? What do you love? The things of this world or the things of God? The way you answer that question will determine the course of your life both now and for eternity.